Yeah, no, um, to answer the first part, I did grow up here um, in the hills. Um, it's funny you mentioned, uh, I've seen the bus stuff going around, like about UWA being top 100 in the world, because when I was in Oxford and we'd uh, do triathlon races against Cambridge, all they were busy arguing about was who was the, the top university <laughs> in the world, so it's, it's kind of funny coming back to WA after being there and everyone's like, we're top 100, and it's like... <laughs> anyway, that sounds really snobby. I'm just more just commenting on the humour of it. Um, then, yeah. <laughs> no worries. So, when did you move back to Perth? Uh, moved back in 2013. Uh, was planning on going back into engineering and work as an engineer, um, but I guess the doors just kept opening to keep studying theology a bit further. And I, um, yeah, I think once you, if you're convinced of its truthfulness, you're kind of willing to invest time and energy in it. And so I thought, oh. I'll keep doing this, and um, like I said, the doors kept opening, and so um, studied theology here, and um, now I'm like my teenage version's worst nightmare of a person. I actually work as a minister and as an evangelist, so like the last thing I ever wanted to be doing, uh, I'm funnily enough doing, and uh, and actually really enjoy it. So uh, does that answer the question? I can't remember what well it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what made you want to go into evangelism? When did you start believing in God, that sort of thing? Yeah, um, so uh, I'll answer the second part first. I think that'll make sense of the next. Uh, the first part, uh, the second part is uh, when I start believing in God. I think I probably almost always did intuitively. Uh, we see that's most people's experience in the world, funnily enough. Uh, but in terms of coming to not just know about God, but know God personally, uh, I think that was something that happened as I, I started to learn the gospel more as I got older. I had a good experience of Christianity from my parents, but in terms of coming to um, grasp onto it with more than just something that was inherited, uh, I think that happened step by step as I got older, particularly when I was at uni studying engineering and was had to really think through my worldview because my classmates were really great people from very different worldviews and... Uh, it made me really think, oh, am I just a Christian because I've been brought up with this? Or is, is there, like, uh, some some clout, some credibility to this? Or, so um, that's why I really started to do a lot of digging on whether Jesus is a reliable guy or not. Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, well, I'll leave it to you. And, um, yeah. Thanks, Wait. Isaac. All right. Uh, well, uh, thanks for having me today, guys. Um, I hope you can hear me all right without the mic. Is that... If, um, if you need me to move back, I will, um, but I just maybe a bit more natural if I can stand over here. Uh, so, why uh, bother believing in God? Well, over a century ago, the famed atheist Friedrich Nietzsche sent philosophical shockwaves into the world when he declared his famous God is dead statement. Uh, to Nietzsche, God was nothing more than an intellectual relic. Uh, an idea which people needed to fulfil certain psychological desires, and so he said and argued that there were no good reason to believe, no good reasons to believe that God actually exists. And Nietzsche wasn't alone. At the uh, centre of intellectual figures uh, towards the turn of the 20th century, two other uh, prominent people came through from Germany and Austria, and they in- influenced many people to come. Uh, as to why people believed in God. So Ludwig Feuerbach was a a guy who, in his infamous book, The Essence of Christianity, argued that religion should be dismissed as nothing more than wish fulfilment. 
Uh, and his theory was that people projected their longings and desires upwards to create a god in their own image. Now, he wasn't alone in this. Uh, the Greek philosopher uh, Xenophanes, or people debate over how to pronounce his name, uh, he roughly said the same thing in about 500 BC, arguing that that's all the Greek gods were. They were just kind of divine projections of ourselves. And so Feuerbach really made this idea popular that humanity invented God, or humanity created God, which when you think about it's the exact inverse of uh, what theism teaches, that, that God created humanity. And then the next most significant figure was Sigmund Freud. Uh, I'm sorry um, all these guys have such amazing facial hair and a little bit of a scowly expression. That wasn't intentional, it's just how they roll. Uh, and Sigmund Freud, the father of the psychoanalytic tradition, believed similarly that the Christian God, or the idea of a heavenly father was nothing more than a mere projection that people had who were estranged from their earthly parents and so he thought this gave people a sense of security uh, and it was good to know that there was a big sky daddy looking out for them and so uh, that was his explanation for religious belief he wasn't really answering whether or not there is a god he was explaining why we have a belief in god do you see the difference Anyway, uh, fast forward to the present and you do have a bit of a rehashing of the same ideas but not usually put quite as uh, forcefully or maybe uh, in, uh, as, with as much sophistication and you get the new breed of uh, atheists called the New Atheists uh, who uh, Richard Dawkins is kind of the poster child for and uh, he defines faith or belief in God uh, faith being the belief in the absence of evidence is the principal vice of any religion. And so he argued that faith in God is nothing more than a blind leap in the dark, one reserved for fools, the intellectually lazy, and those too weak to cope with reality. Or in the language of Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, a great cosmologist, uh, he said that religion is just a fairy story for those uh, afraid of the dark. So what do we make of all this? Uh, as uni students, it is a good opportunity to think through this stuff and uh, think about our worldviews, uh, why we believe what we do. Uh, is belief in God just a kind of wish fulfilment? And this can be really unsettling, uh, whether you're coming from a Christian background or a, uh, a non-Christian background, uh, to really think seriously through this, because I don't think you can just dismiss it offhand because you think it's ridiculous. If you, if you feel like you can do that, you maybe haven't looked into it as closely as you... As you as you could, or if you just kind of grab hold of it really quickly, you might not kind of be aware of the, uh, the serious challenges posed to uh, having a rational basis for belief in God. Uh, as I said when I was in, uh, kind of just answering some questions before, I came to know God uh, through Jesus when I was young. Uh, I'd been to church my whole life, but primarily I had a really good experience of, of what God was like and uh, the teaching of Jesus through my folks. So I had a positive experience of Christianity, uh, but uh, in one sense that wasn't just that wasn't robust enough to, a- to answer all the questions that life would eventually throw. And so uh, as I started to look into this more, I could see that the world uh, did kind of uh, have a fingerprints of intelligibility behind it. Uh, intuitively, most people throughout the history of the world uh, seem to believe that this requires some kind of intent behind the universe. And so it wasn't until kind of years later that I was really studying this for myself as, 
as a uni student uh, that I began to examine uh, all the evidence I could find available. Uh, and Christianity claims to be an evidence-based faith. It claims to be a, a, a worldview uh, that you should embrace, not because you think it's just merely attractive, but because you're convinced it's true. And so uh, it's worth looking into. So uh, I was willing to kind of examine the evidence as an adult, as a student, and uh, I, I, I hope that as you do that, uh, it, you would see that it's not only something that is potentially good, uh, but also something that's true. And so most arguments and most debates over the existence of God come down to one of those two categories. It's arguing over whether or not this is true, or whether or not arguing or not over whether God is actually good. So some kind of moral reason why God couldn't exist. And so I spent the last kind of 13 years examining uh, the case for Christianity and some objections thrown at it. And uh, I kind of remain convinced, intellectually convinced, that Christianity is the most reasonable offer on the table. Uh, and so obviously still still willing to hear uh, as much as I can and learn, uh, but kind of the more I've learned and read... Uh, in one sense, uh, the more confidence I'd say it's given me. I hope not closed-mindedness, uh, but I hope a good sense of confidence. So what we're going to look at today is some of the reasons why I believe uh, you should bother believing in God. There's plenty more, uh, but here's just some. So if this talk is not really arguing for the truthfulness of, of theism, but it's trying to investigate some of the significance of belief in God. Does that make sense? So you could give classical arguments for evidence of the existence of God. Uh, that's not really the agenda today as, as much looking at, well, what's at stake here? And so uh, the three ways that we're going to consider this, or the three levels that we're going to consider, what do I gain by believing in, in God, or Jesus specifically, and Christianity, uh, or what do I lose by not believing in Jesus? So three levels we'll look at this question are philosophically, uh, kind of the way you make sense of reality, uh, psychologically, meaning our own mental state, experience of life, and theologically, kind of what does uh, the Bible or what does God seem to say about whether or not I have belief in Him? Uh, isn't it kind of just a bit desperate for God to, you know, as a God, to seem to care whether or not I believe in Him? You know, in this tiny speck of dust, in this tiny planet, in this massive solar system kind of... Why does God care whether or not I believe in Him? Okay, so we're going to think a bit about that. So first off, it's worth just kind of owning up to the fact that we all have different world uh, worldviews, uh, and we all answer uh, these four big questions of life in one way or another. Whether we've explicitly answered them in our minds, or whether we're just kind of living a story implicitly, uh, we do ask questions of origin, uh, where we come from, uh, meaning. Uh, what's this all for? Uh, morality, how we should live, and destiny, uh, what happens when we die. And so the reason why I think uh, belief in God is important is because it does give coherent and rational answers for all of these. It makes it has explanatory power in terms of saying where we've come from. Uh, it gives us a meaning in life that we've been created by God and for God. Uh, it establishes that there is actually an objective moral framework. It's not just my subjective feeling with whoever has the biggest stick. Uh, and it finally provides a reasonable foundation for hope in terms of questions of where, we, uh, where we're going to end up. So uh, just later this afternoon, I have to go meet with uh, the daughter of a lady who just died uh, last week, a Christian lady. 
And uh, that is one of the things that the Christian worldview speaks into quite uh, powerfully, that the grave isn't just the end, uh, but that it's a terminal. And so uh, these are really important things to think through, but it's important that we don't just look for answers that kind of make us feel good, that satisfy us. In our quest for truth, there's a way of kind of reasoning and determining if if something is true. Because I don't want to believe what just makes me feel good, I want to believe what is true, and I, I do ultimately think that believing what is true will actually be the thing that is most satisfying. And the three tests for truth that philosophers and thinkers tell us you can apply to any worldview is that it needs to have logical consistency. Uh, so it can't make you know, internally contradictory claims. Uh, there should be some empirical adequacy for it, that the claim that it makes can be established. Uh, and then experiential relevance. Uh, so actually living and experiencing this in real life actually uh, does this work. Uh, and so... Uh, it's worth pointing out um, that uh, science and that kind of what science can tell us uh, does fit under the empirical, empirical adequacy category, uh, but science won't cover every single base, so uh, don't expect science to answer every single question your worldview will have. And so I think believing in God, first off, is uh, why bother with it? Well, I think you should bother with it because I think it makes it helps make real sense of the big questions we all face Uh, In life, we're not going to have time to go into all of them, but that's just a bit of an overview. Uh, As a window into the atheist worldview, uh, in 2008, the Secular Humanist Society uh, ran a bus slogan in London, and uh, Richard Dawkins personally got behind this, and uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this before, uh, but there was this kind of humbler statement of atheism that there's probably no God... Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, wrapped up in this slogan are, I think, two big ideas, and actually, I'd say two reasons why I'm not uh, an atheist. Uh, First off, uh, I don't think it actually makes good sense of the evidence, and secondly, I don't think there not being a God helps you enjoy life. I think it actually has the opposite effect. It, it, It says that life has no objective meaning or purpose, And so uh, some people think that, but if I believe in God, won't that make me miserable because I'll lose my freedom? It means that there's someone watching everything I could do. But um, your motivation for kind of embracing atheism could be just kind of the pendulum swinging the other way. You've got just as much of a motivation to to want to believe that I do whatever I want and I'm not accountable to anyone. So just kind of analysing your psychological state won't actually answer the reality of whether there is a God out there. So you can kind of psychoanalyze why or why not there may be a God in here, but actually uh, when philosophers look at this, they're not just kind of talking about psychology. And so it is worth thinking though, psychologically, is it worth believing in God? Kind of what benefits will it bring to your life? Uh, What what kind of effect uh, could it have? So some people say, again, that people believe in God just because it has good benefits or people disbelieve in God because it's also got good benefits. And so um, what I would say is, well, if God is real, then surely believing in him would be beneficial. I don't think that's a, a great leap of logic. And so um, here's, here's some of the reasons why I think it is beneficial. Firstly, belief in God gives life a profound sense of meaning. And so knowing that life isn't just here one day and gone the next, but if our existence is beyond the grave and that 
what we do has consequences, then it gives what we do some significance. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a, I mentioned this on Monday, he was a Jewish doctor, a psychiatrist actually, who was in the Nazi death camps for years in World War II. And he survived uh, these horrendous death camps and he wrote a book afterwards called Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, he talks about the fact that he could see under these terrible conditions of, of suffering and people being literally starved to death and the guards playing really sick mental games with them. It's a pretty rough read if you're going to read it. He could see that the people would respond to the death camps in three main ways. The first was that some people just became evil. Uh, they just uh, started collaborating with the enemy. Uh, they became bad. And he said that was, that was one response. The second main response uh, was that some people just lost hope. Uh, they just literally curled up into a ball and died. And then the third group of people that he observed was that, that, that there was a group of people that, that stayed noble, stayed brave, they were literally even self-sacrificing. And when he got out of these camps, amazingly he survived, he tried to really figure out what was it that uh, was the difference. What kind of distinguished these three groups? What did some people have that others didn't that helped them, that, that made them respond in these different ways? And he, he, he realised it all had to do with their meaning in life. He says, if you have a meaning in life that the death camps can take away from you, now think about that. If you have a meaning in life that the death camps can take away, so if your meaning in life is something like grades, or family, or a relationship, or some kind of political cause, or your looks, or your physique, if, if your meaning in life is anything that the death camps can take away from you, then uh, Frankl would say uh, that you would either become evil or you would just shrivel up and die. That was what this psychiatrist observed in people. Uh, and, but he discovered that the people who were able to kind of keep with it and were generally uh, people uh, who were kind and maintained kind of mental sanity in a way, stayed humane really, were people that had a sense of transcendent meaning. And by transcendent I mean like a sense of it wasn't a meaning they had created for themselves. It wasn't linked to something finite. It was something that transcended m mere circumstance. And uh, the American Journal of Psychiatry, uh, looking through Viktor Frankl's work and reading his book, uh, made this comment that Viktor Frankl's message is unconditional faith in an unconditional <laughs> meaning is Dr. Frankl's message to the reader. Now that's really quite fascinating, because if you look at those two, two elements, unconditional faith in an unconditional meaning, it's worth asking yourself, which worldview do you get these kind of, this faith position from? Unconditional faith and unconditional meaning. What kind of worldview can sustain those things? And Frankl uh, kind of could see that people creating a meaning, it actually wasn't durable enough to do this. It's actually a meaning that you discover, something outside of yourself which is durable enough to do it. To do it. And he said that most people in the camps, uh, they actually found this, either through, through some of them would go back to religion or some of them would believe that their loved ones who had died were still with them, but they had to believe in something transcendent. But if you boil down atheism or naturalism to the idea that we are merely a, a product of a mindless, unguided process, or to kind of put it, uh, I guess, rough in a rough way, you're just a cosmic accident, then there is actually no ultimate objective meaning to our existence. It's just a temporary form of consciousness that will one day cease, 
And so nothing we do has any ultimate significance because whether we live very well or very poorly or very, in a very evil and selfish way, in a billion years or four billion years in the heat death of the universe, as, as uh, Carl Sagan would say, uh, it actually doesn't matter. And so a created meeting is actually quite shallow and, and I argued on Monday that a created meeting is less durable uh, than a meaning that you discover. And so, uh, if God has kind of hardwired a kind of meaning and a purpose into creation, uh, where could we find this? And uh, Sir John Templeton was someone observing this phenomena. He said, is it strange, or would it not be strange if a universe without purpose or meaning accidentally created humans who are so obsessed with purpose? I think that's a really insightful thing to point out, uh, as uh, uh, who's the guy? I can't remember his name. Great thinker. He said, "Man is the cosmic orphan, the kind of being who's always crying out, why?" And it's quite a strange for uh, Lauren Isley. If, if any of you are Isley fans, there you go. Uh, and and what? And Templeton's noticing that and tapping into it, and he's going, "Yeah, isn't it a strange thing?" That a universe with no meaning or purpose accidentally created humans who are so obsessed with it. And I think belief in God, theism, makes good sense of our desire for meaning and purpose. The alternative, uh, kind of distilled down in in a YouTube clip by Reasonable Faith on uh, Is There Any Meaning to Life, they say, well, your destiny on atheism is unrelated to how you act. Because we will be wiped out in the heat that the universe so it makes no difference how you act. So it's relatively bleak, and I don't actually think that makes good sense of our experience of life. Uh, that it could be true. I'm not saying it's impossible. It, it's true. It could. It could be true, uh, but I don't think it makes the best sense. So interestingly, thinking about this theme of purpose, uh, the reformers in the in the 16th century had a slogan uh, that they would say as their motivator for for life, uh, and their slogan was "Solely Dio Gloria." <coughs> Uh, we just celebrated last October the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And that slogan there means, uh, glory to God alone. Now that might seem like a relatively uh, very abstract, lofty idea to you. Uh, but as people kind of press deeper and deeper into that, they, found a pr- they find a profound sense of meaning and purpose in there. Uh, next, in terms of Christian worldview, why believe in God? What do you do with suffering? Like, why, is belief in, why does belief in God matter when we live in a world full of suffering? Well, for the Christian, uh, one of the benefits of believing in God is for the Christian, suffering doesn't actually have to be meaningless. Uh, biblically, God can actually use suffering for good purposes. And Romans 8 even makes this interesting idea. The Apostle Paul, writing to a group of Christians, says, I don't believe that our present sufferings are worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. So the Bible is quite fascinating. It doesn't say that your suffering is unimportant, or it doesn't say that it's insignificant, or it doesn't say, oh, just get over it. It says, no, no, it is significant, it's real. You've been grieved, to use the language of another biblical author. Um, but actually, in comparison to what God has prepared and what God can use this for, uh, it, it pales in comparison. And so one of the things that my, my daily prayer journal, funnily enough, has in it by Australian theologian Peter Adam, there's this line, please help me to know that slight momentary afflictions work an eternal weight of glory and that nothing is wasted in your economy. 
This gives people a profound uh, strength to face life with. Uh, the meaning uh, that, that belief and a relationship with God can give you in the midst of suffering. Uh, so, uh, to put it back in um, the kind of terms of Viktor Frankl, who, who always quoted Nietzsche, who is the guy, funnily enough, at the beginning, who was father of the God is Dead movement, Nietzsche would say, he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. And so that's one of the big things, I think, uh, that belief in God has going for it psychologically, not just that it gives us a sense of purpose and meaning and helps us cope with suffering, but finally, one of the most significant things is, belief in God gives you this profound sense of self-worth. In believing in a God that created you and wanted you to exist, that he didn't need you to exist, he's not some kind of cosmic desperate deity, but wanted you to exist and created you out of his generosity... That God wanted you to exist means that your identity is not just circumstantial. That because there's a purpose for your being here, you have value and worth regardless of your utility. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean is regardless of your ability to perform, regardless of your capacity, uh, your ability to contribute to society, the Christian worldview says, no, no, since every person is made as an image bearer of God, they all have infinite value and worth. That every person matters regardless of their utility. And that is, pro- this is, that is really profound. And funnily enough, we take that for granted. Like we have humanistic values now that we live in, like kind of we believe in a welfare system. This is a, 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 a gift from Christianity really. If you look at it historically, this was not something that the Romans or the Greeks come up with. And if, if you don't believe me on that front, look up atheist agnostic uh, Cambridge, um, historian from Cambridge, Tom Holland, uh, not the Tom Holland who's an actor for the new Spider-Man movie, Cambridge historian, uh, and he says, yeah, I've realised I'm actually, I'm an atheist, but I'm profoundly Christian in my ethics. And he goes, I've been studying Greek and Roman history in my entire academic life, and he goes, we did not get these values from the Greeks, the Romans, you did not get this from uh, places like uh, uh, Southeast Buddha, Southeast Asia, or the Hindu uh, worldview, you did not get there. Where do we get this idea that everyone has uh, innate value and worth? Where did it come from? That's, I think it's a gift of Christianity. So anyway, that these things are psychologically true, uh, it doesn't mean uh, that they're just wish fulfilment. It, it could also mean that there's a deeper truth uh, underneath them, and that's kind of why we have these desires. So finally... We've kind of talked about the fact that it's worth believing in God because it has benefits intellectually. It makes sense of big philosophical questions. It has benefits psychologically. It gives us meaning and purpose, significance, helps us deal with suffering. But I actually want to zoom in now on actually what I think is probably the most important thing, uh, why we should bother believing in God. Now, I'm going to kind of be a little bit cheeky and speak more specifically about Christian theism here. Uh, this is not so much just a case for Islamic or, or Jewish theism. Uh, I'll I'll let them answer for themselves. Uh, Would you need to believe in God on Islam and Judaism? Just kind of briefly, Islam would say, well, of course you'd have to believe in God because the goal of Islam is that you submit to Allah. That's primarily what Islam's about. Uh, So that's how they would deal with that question. Judaism would then say kind of, uh, there's the Ten Commandments you need to keep. So in order to keep the Ten Commandments, especially 
first and second commandments about God, you would have to believe it. So I want to zoom in on Christianity. What does, and if you're going to speak about Christianity, I think Jesus is probably a good person to look at. Uh, and what does Jesus say about believing uh, in God? Or even Jesus does something interesting, a little bit of a sleight of hand. People come and talk to him about believing in God and he inserts himself in there. And he goes, well, how about you believe in me? Uh, just a little curveball for any of you who think Jesus didn't claim to be God. But uh, here's what uh, we see uh, Jesus uh, happening in Jesus' life. And John was one of uh, Jesus' uh, disciples, one of his uh, followers, one of his three best mates. And John kind of wrote an account of Jesus' life, and he wrote these significant signs that Jesus did to give evidence of him being who he claimed to be, which could then lead to us having faith, and then could lead to what in John's terms was life. Now at first you might think, oh man, this is such a Christian way of analysing it, because the word faith's in there. But uh, if you think about it, we actually use this kind of three-fold process any time we consider whether something uh, might explain or enhance our lives. So whether it's looking for the right exercise regime or diet, or kind of getting health or financial advice, or choosing a career or a university, or, you know, the evidence we might survey is that it's in the top 100 or something. Uh, but what we do is we look for evidence, we kind of gather it together, and usually we get evidence from primarily the epistemologist will tell us, most evidence we get comes from testimony, meaning word-of-mouth communication. So for you empiricists out there, just chew on that. Well over 90% of what we believe, we believe from what we've been told, uh, funnily enough. Uh, and so, and not just that it's kind of how we believe stuff, they've, uh, philosophers have argued, a uh, philosopher from Melbourne uh, argued that this is one of the most reliable forms of epistemology. For those, if those of you who don't know what that word means, uh, just it means that, uh, believing stuff on the basis of what people tell you is a reliable means of knowing. For those of you uh, nerds out there who like that field of epistemology, uh, you're welcome. Uh, but you might think, oh, this is a Christian way of approaching it. But no, this is actually something all of us do in all of life. And so once we've examined and once we've heard or we've uh, kind of got enough information, we'll then kind of form our belief system so we commit to it, which is really what the word faith means. Uh, committing on the basis of evidence, uh, and then we start living in accordance with that belief. And so what this illustrates is the truth that we actually all live by faith in something, uh, whether it's at a level of our core everyday values or even everyday kind of lesser opinions on kind of what we eat or drink or whether we'll have like skim or normal milk in our coffee, all of those decisions are made through this similar process. And I just love that John kind of forms his gospel in that way. Uh, you probably picked up if you were out on Monday, John's probably my favourite gospel. Uh, every now and then, uh, anyone I'm reading, I'll go, oh, this is amazing, you see more layers. But I think John, for anyone who's kind of giving a, a real zoom into the Christian life, John's definitely one of the best. Because truth is a mega theme in John's gospel. He's trying to compile evidence to get you to kind of put some confidence in Jesus. And I love John because he shows his hand. Really bad cards player, like he's playing poker, it's all over at the start. But he says, I've written these things so that you could believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? That, that's, that's exactly that process. Look at that, evidence, faith, life. That's exactly what John goes. He goes, yeah, I'm writing these things. I'm giving you evidence 
so that you could believe, another word for faith, in Jesus and therefore have life. And, and so I, I think that John's Gospel is definitely one of the best to look at because you can have a framework for meaning in life and for purpose in life just by kind of a belief in a God in theism. But the argument from John and from Jesus is that you can actually only access that meaning and purpose. You can actually only access that God, not just know about Him, but know Him personally, through actually coming to know Jesus. And so that's why one of the most famous verses in all the Bible that you know American sports fans put on posters and put up in sports games to try and get on TV, and I always feel a little bit embarrassed as an only Christian watching those things, because every time I've gone to America, I'm like, oh... It's this really weird Christian culture that we kind of don't get here. And so just kind of as a caveat, even as a Christian, that feels weird to me. But um, John 3.16 is one of the best known verses in, in the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, see John's using that word again, should not perish but have eternal life. So you see, in John's gospel, and uh, Jesus taught this, and the apostles, his earliest followers, did teach us as well. Belief in God is not just something that kind of saves you from perishing. That's not just why Christians believe in God, because they're kind of scared of the fire. But actually, belief in God actually gives you something. It gives you eternal life. And so it's worth asking, well, what does Jesus John mean by this idea of eternal life? Because he seems to think that the life he offers is really good. Like knowing him... Uh, the life he offers is great. He even puts it in these terms, I've come that people may have life and have life to the full. So, I mean, if you're thinking about whether you should believe in God, uh, the offer that Jesus puts out there is that like, this is actually the best way to live. It's a full life. It's a rich life. And kind of what he, what he ends up saying is, well, what, what is this life? And so just before we get there, uh, I sat next to a, a lady on a plane a little while ago. Uh, she used to be in the Navy. And uh, for those of you who know kind of Navy women, you know how scary this could be. Uh, and so the question comes up, what do you do? And as a Christian pastor, that's always a little bit of an awkward question because it can be quite a conversation killer when you tell people you're a pastor. And they're like, oh, how many times? Then you can see them counting in their head how many times they've just sworn, you know, in conversation with you in the last 10 <laughs> seconds to start panicking. Uh, but, you know, she, she starts chatting and she said that she had a Salvation Army, you know, background. And uh, it's funny, she said, I'm not religious anymore. But it turned out that it had nothing to do with evidence or belief in God or all that. Uh, she started speaking about uh, money. And, well, why does the, the church teach that you need to give 10% of your money? Uh, which, funnily enough, is not what the New Testament teaches anymore. But she asked about this, and she goes, well, what do you do? What do you think about this, this money stuff? And so we chatted about that. But what it revealed was that, really, the thing that was roadblocking her belief in God, it, was, it wasn't actually to do with evidence or uh, whether it was compelling. It was actually just to do with the secondary matter of, oh, I think this has some claim to my money, and that's actually my priority. So, see, she thought that real life, was found in kind of money. And Jesus goes, no, no, real life is found in something else. And so this is where we're finishing. We've, we've done a big run-up. I think this is one of the kind of the best summaries that you find in John's Gospel. He says that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. See, John's Gospel is, is helping us see that believing in God is not just something that's of 
philosophical or psychological value. But believing in Jesus is a way that you can know God personally. Like, not just know about him to kind of solve equations in your worldview mind, but actually have a personal relationship with God. And it's not just a kind of quantity of life that's increased. It's not just that you live forever, eternity, which some people don't find compelling. I guess I get that. Life in John's Gospel is qualitatively different as well. Does that make sense? It's not just quality, it's not quality, not just quantity, but it's quality as well. And so finally, uh, as I was getting off a plane a few weeks ago, I do a lot of travelling and stuff. I, I called my wife to see how far away she was, and she said she's about 10 minutes away, and I'm frequent, a platinum frequent flyer member, so I was like, oh, I'll just go into the lounge. And funnily enough, often what I'll do is... Um, I'll go get some food, and I can take three free guests in, because I'm a platinum member. So sometimes I'll just go and find some random in the airport and go, got free tickets, do you want to come into the lounge? You can have as much food, booze, and Wi-Fi and comfy chairs as you want. Like, the funny thing is, is that um, a lot of people I chat to are often like really confused and hesitant. But I saw this guy, uh, I walked past him, and he looked like a very much bogan, surfy dude. Uh, and it uh, didn't look like he had a meal for a while, so I thought it'd be a good guy to ask. And I said, hey, do you want to come into this lounge? No strings attached, like you don't need to speak to me or anything. We can just go in and go our separate ways. Uh, you can have as much food as you want. And he's like, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what's the catch? And I'm like, no, nah, no catch. I've got free passes. Virgin Australia may as well look after you. Like, no point in going to waste. And he was like, oh, no way. So he came in, and he just... He just couldn't... I'm trying to leave because my wife's waiting outside for me at this stage. And he just couldn't understand why I would give him something like that for free. And he's like, why are you doing this? And eventually he kind of pushed me off. I was like, well, look, I'm, I'm a Christian. And I, I think that like Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said it's better to give than receive. And uh, so, yeah, I kind of just want to put that into practice. And he wanted to keep chatting. He just wanted to keep talking because this generosity, this kind of grace that he had was so compelling. But the funny thing I found... Most people that I've asked, do you want to come into the airport lounge, say no. Why? Why do like 8 out of 10 people say no when I go, do you want as much free food, sweet and salty popcorn, which is amazing, and like tea bags as you want? You know? Uh, I always take a few from my wife back home and it's like, stop getting her presents when I travel now. I just get those fancy, <laughs> fancy tea bags from the lounge. She loves it. But why do most people say no? The reason why most people say no is because they don't trust me. It's like, who's this weirdo asking me to come into the lounge with them? It's actually, there's no doubt that there's good benefits on offer, but it's like, no, no, there's no good explanation for why he would do this so I don't trust him. And funnily enough, uh, according to John's Gospel, that's why most people fail to receive the good gifts and the life that God wants to give them. And so in this passage, you see these big ideas all distilled. Uh, that someone's, Thomas is saying, well, we don't know the way or how we should live. And Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father also. And then he kind of finishes a bit later by saying, if you know me, and you hear my words, you'll have peace, and you will have trouble. You're going to have suffering in this life, but take heart. And then he speaks about the glory of God, which is the purpose of life for Christians. And then he speaks about eternity and more. Um, but that's, that's it for us. Uh, we've run out of time, so I'm going to finish there and um, throw it up for questions. Uh, so thanks for having me.
Um, so you probably have time for one, maybe two questions. So just stick your hand up and if you've got one. Yep. Um, so in something you said at the start where you said that the more you've read about, the more you've studied Jesus and theology, the more confidence you have yep. of its truth. And you said... I hope not close-mindedness. Now, I find myself sort of on the other end of that spectrum. I've read a bit of Dawkins and Hitchens, and I, I feel I have a bit of confidence in maybe the naturalistic or atheist worldview. Yep. How do I make sure it's not close-mindedness? Oh, man, that's a really good question. Um, uh... Well, I mean, it, it's probably a bit easier to answer because I know you a bit. I think one of, the, one of the best things that you are doing, which is the best thing for all people to do, is to have friends of other worldviews that you can kind of uh, discuss and debate and kind of see it lived out with, where you kind of have your ideas challenged and you're forced to actually think a bit wider. I think the danger is, and, and actually sociologists will say this is a growing problem in our society, is that we're increasingly living in echo chambers it's like due to like algorithms online and stuff, they're able to filter the information we read and the stuff we like down to groups and inclinations. And so what's happening is people are just reading stuff they already agree with. So I think the key would be um, reading and engaging with stuff that's hard to, and maybe even uncomfortable to engage with, but, but valuable. And keep pushing the dial a bit further. So when I read Dawkins and Hitchens, I want to kind of push the dial a bit further by going they do seem to think they can explain away our desire for meaning and purpose and they can explain away uh, objective morality and they can explain away things like humanistic values uh, with an evolutionary mechanism that I don't think has enough explanatory power to deal with it. I actually think it, it has some explanation, but actually I don't think it holds enough water to actually make sense of our deepest longings. And so I, what I mean is the way I live life uh, I don't th see their worldview actually living out in what most people treasure and value. Because I think at the heart of it, if, if we're really pushed, usually most people say the most important... Oh, I'll be careful saying most people. A lot of people will say the most important thing in life is the relationships you have. Um, on the Christian worldview, that makes 100% sense. Because at the very centre of reality is a relational God. I don't think it does on Islam or Judaism because they don't have a relational God. Uh, where a God, a God in, uh, in Christianity is a relational being, Father, Son, Spirit. And so at the very centre of reality in the Christian worldview is a relational being. And I'm like, that makes best sense of my experience of life on multiple levels and also my deepest longings uh, for meaningful relationships. And I think that's the stuff that makes life uh, rich. And so, uh, yeah, I think keep reading widely and, um, and also, it's something that it might sound outrageous to people who have the naturalistic mind, mindset, but I don't believe this world is a closed system, so I would actually suggest that you do pray. Uh, if there is a God and uh, He cares about you, uh, do pray and say, God, um, in the words of Jesus, seek and you will find. So put Him to the test, in a sense. Because uh, he promises if you seek, you will find. Uh, but the inverse is also true. If we don't seek, uh, we have no guarantee we will find. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers, but 
I'm really sorry, I'm long-winded at best. Just a real quick one, on the flip side, as a Christian, I find myself only wanting to read Christian books. Would you advise <laughs> reading the missions to remain? I know, uh, yeah, I know. Um, that's a great point, Ben. Um, yeah, I, yeah, if you love people, you should read the stuff they're reading. If you love people. Um, otherwise, you, you, will, you will preach and you will speak uh, um, you will communicate like the people you're speaking to and the information you're taking in. So, and this would be an encouragement for all anyone who's in CU, and I'm not anti-CU, I was like way too much of a CU nerd at uni. I was like vice president and president and evangelism director for like four years while I was on campus for five. So I'm not, uh, I'm not being anti, but if you're doing like four CU meetings a week, of like Bible study and public meeting and training. Like I'm not anti you, But you know if four CU meetings a week and you, you don't ever hang out with your non-Christian friends because you're always doing CU stuff, I'd say that's, that's not healthy for actually loving people. So I'd go do three and do one session with your non-Christian friends. Like, yeah. Sorry, Tim, if I'm not allowed to say that. But anyway. Um, we're going to have to leave there. Um, but, no, thanks for coming, Jordan. That was, um, yeah, really great.